The following is message number two of a Southeast Blending Conference held in Jacksonville, Florida on September the 2nd of 2006. The title of the message is The Four Great Pillars and the Lord's Recovery Part 2, The Church and the Gospel. The speaker is Brother Ron Kangas. We mean the Lord's move throughout the centuries to bring his people back to the beginning so that through them and with them he may fulfill his original intention. A basic truth in the word is that God and God alone is the source. Out from him are all things. He is called the Father because he is the origin, he is the originator, and he is the initiator. And the Bible further reveals, especially in Ephesians, that before there was a universe, God formed his eternal purpose in Christ, and he selected us in Christ to be holy and predestinated us unto sonship so that we would be the members of his body and ultimately the new Jerusalem. With this purpose in his heart, the Lord God then created the universe. Revelation 4.11 says that he created all things because of his will. And his will is his determination to carry out his eternal purpose, to have the body of Christ consummating in the new Jerusalem for his corporate expression. God is clearly the originator. Then when he began his move in the present age, first in the Son and then through the apostles, he released his revelation and he released the certain way he ordained to live out this revelation. This is what we mean by the beginning. The beginning refers to God's original intention. The beginning refers to what God has revealed. The beginning refers to what God has ordained. And, and God's character is such that he does not fluctuate. He's not variable. Many of us can testify that when he makes up his mind to do something, he does it. When he determines to get something, he gets it. It's just a matter of time. But there has been a very serious departure in all kinds of ways from God's revelation in the beginning. The truth has been lost, has been sacrificed, has been watered down, has been 
corrupted, has been misapplied. The way of the tree of life, the experience of life, the growth in life, the salvation in life, the reigning in life has been largely lost. The all-inclusive Christ with his preeminence has been replaced in the lives of so many believers by things that are not Christ. The church has been divided again and again and again till it's almost totally unrecognizable and bears no similarity to the genuine church revealed in the New Testament. Because of this deplorable situation, God has no way to carry out his original intention unless there is a recovery, a gradual recovery of what was lost, a gradual return to what was God's intention in the beginning. And last night we pointed out the principle of recovery is to be brought back to the beginning when the Lord was asked about divorce and they told him that Moses said we could just write a certificate of divorce and send the woman away. The Lord said, in the beginning, it was not so. But because of the hardness of your heart, Moses, representing God, allowed you to do this. I mentioned last night, and this is a review to those who were here or to the memory challenged, and an update for those of you that were trying to get here while we were having the meeting last night, and maybe arrived while we were sleeping. The, uh, there's a responsibility that we all bear when we come together like this, especially as it relates to the truth. Because God's intention in revealing us the truth is that we would obey it. The truth is to be obeyed. According to 2nd and 3rd John, the truth needs to be in us. We need to walk according to the truth. John could say he loved in truthfulness. So right away, when we touch the principle of recovery, we face a matter that can be a crisis for some believers. That is, you have a choice. You may do what God allows. And you may practice what God permits. Or you may return to the beginning. To what was God's plan in the beginning. Using that example of marriage and divorce, spoken of in Matthew 19, those whose hearts were hardened, who were set to do something for themselves, eventually were allowed to do so. But in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, there was no such practice 
God made them male and female, and the two were joined to be one flesh. A lot of things have appeared in the course of history in nearly 2,000 years. So we have the denominations, we have the clergy laity system, we have the hierarchy. We have the money-grubbing religious persons. We have all kinds of things. And the dear people of God, like sheep, are in the midst of this. Then the Lord's recovery comes. I wouldn't say with a challenge, but with a trumpet saying, it was not this way in the beginning. In the beginning, it was not so. Well, some may say, yes, that's right. It was not this way in the beginning, but we have no choice now. We can't go back. You're dreaming to think we can go back. Well, I'm glad Martin Luther didn't say, that's right, in the beginning, justification was by grace through faith. That's right, it was that way in the beginning. But you have to realize the Roman Catholic Church has developed a sacramental theology in the meantime, and we just have to make do with the present situation and stop your dreaming about going back. Well, we're going back. I'm glad a remnant of the children of Israel in Babylon realized the 70 years are over, The prophecy of Jeremiah has been fulfilled. The prayer of Daniel related to that prophecy is being answered. The Lord has stirred our spirit up, even the king. The Lord put a Cyrus in office. Even a king encourages us to go back. But the vast majority stayed in Babylon. They had their businesses. Probably they had their synagogues. They had assimilated that culture to a certain degree, but a small number went back to Jerusalem. And that is where the temple was built. The principle of recovery is to go back to the beginning, not because we're looking for a perfect situation, We're not looking for an ideal church. We just want what is genuine. We like to know that if Paul were here and wanted to write a letter to the church of God in Jacksonville, where would he send it? I know where he would send it. He would send it to the church in Jacksonville. Because the recovery has come to this city. The Lord's recovery is the Lord's recovery. It is of Him. It belongs to Him. It is according to Him. It is for Him. And it is unto Him. The Lord, for a period of time, raises up certain serving ones who serve Him in His recovery. But the recovery never becomes their possession. It is the Lord's recovery. 
The Lord's recovery, I am assured, is unshakable in its foundation. This house is built upon a rock, to use the Lord's own word. And the recovery is founded upon four great pillars. And these pillars are as solid as God himself, because actually these pillars are God in Christ himself. And last night we considered the first two pillars, truth and life. And I would like to read one sentence from last night's outline on page two related to truth. And then shortly another sentence from page four related to life. This is Roman numeral one point A. The Lord's recovery is the recovery of the light of the truth. Not simply a recovery of the truth, but a recovery of the light of the truth. The truth is first the revealed divine reality. Actually, truth is God himself. I've been enjoying John 8, 40. In this verse, the Lord says, You seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And the Lord eventually said of himself, I am the truth. He testified For this I was born, for this I came into the world, that I might testify concerning the truth. This truth is God as the divine reality revealed in his word. And truth is also the actual human situation. Exposed in the light of this revelation. To know the truth concerning God eventually requires knowing the truth concerning ourselves. We need to know our actual situation, both in our fallen condition and in Christ. Some of you need to be assured of the truth that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from every sin. That you are covered with Christ as your robe of righteousness. That you have the right to the tree of life because you wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. But I would emphasize by reading this point, that truth is the shining of light. And this morning, as some of us were praying, there was strong prayer that light would shine. To know the Lord's recovery is to know the truth as the first great pillar 
in the Lord's recovery. To be in the Lord's recovery is to be in the truth as the shining of light. Someone may say, I'm in the recovery. I, I left the denomination and I came to meet with the church in my city. I'm in the local church. I'm in the Lord's recovery. That is true. That is no lie. But that is elementary and that is superficial. Someone may be in a local church and in that sense may be in the Lord's recovery, but not be intrinsically, essentially in the Lord's recovery. There are workers, I don't say co-workers, I say workers today in the sphere of the Lord's recovery who actually are not in the recovery. There are elders so-called in certain places that really do not know the Lord's recovery and are not in the Lord's recovery in its essence and cannot shepherd the flock of God into what they are not in themselves. To know the Lord's recovery is not simply to have a body of information. It is by the Spirit with a renewed mind to touch the very heart, the depths of the recovery. And we are seeking to do this by considering the four great pillars. Are you in the Lord's recovery? Yes, you are. You shouldn't doubt it. But it's like saying, are you saved? Yes, you're saved. My sins are forgiven. I have eternal life. But have you been fully saved in life? Well, that is a process. In the same principle, yes, we're in the Lord's recovery by being in the church life. But there are degrees of being in the Lord's recovery inwardly, subjectively, experientially, organically. We don't want to be in the Lord's recovery merely outwardly. And our being, our actual being, is somewhere else. Psalm 84 speaks of the highways of Zion being in the hearts of the seeking ones. Of course, Zion is a place. It's the peak in Jerusalem where the temple was built. But this Zion was in their hearts, was in their being, was in their love, was in their thinking, was in their intention. And this is where the Lord's recovery needs to be, rooted in our being, and we need to be constituted with these essential elements, the first of which is the truth as the shining of light. We may have knowledge, even knowledge we gain from reading the Bible, knowledge we gain from reading the ministry. That is not bad and that is not wrong, but it's not yet truth. Knowledge becomes truth under the shining of the light. Martin Luther knew Romans 1, 
the righteous shall be justified by faith. One day the light shined and the truth came and he was set free. So since truth is the shining of light and truth is the first great pillar in the Lord's recovery, how much we are in the recovery in our being depends on how much we are in the light and how much light is in us. Truth is the shining of light. And regarding truth, we are not in a neutral situation. In John 8.32, the Lord said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In verse 36, he revealed the Son shall set you free. You shall be free indeed. Then in verse 44, he spoke of the father of lies, the devil who does not stand in the truth and in whom there is no truth. So on the one side, we have the triune God and his word, all of which are the truth, being spoken through his witnesses. On the other side, we have Satan, the devil, the father of liars, speaking out of his own being and uttering lies through his children. So we are locked into a struggle, whether we know it or not or like it or not, between the truth, which is a person, and the lie, which also is a person. And one characteristic of the new man, according to Ephesians 4, is that we put off the lie. And everyone speaks truth to his neighbor. Don't you, isn't there something in you desiring to be in the Lord's recovery in this way, in an intrinsic way, to know the Lord's recovery like this? Then the point concerning life is on page 4, Roman numeral 2, uh, capital D. The central recovery of the Lord is to recover the divine life within us that God may have his corporate expression. In order to express God, you have to have the life of God. You have to be the same as God in life. God's goal, we may say in a simple word, is to produce with his people a glorious corporate expression of himself. That's why we were made in his image, to express him. And the new Jerusalem, which has the glory of God and the appearance of God as Jasper, will be the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 1.26. God wants to express himself in the Son with the many sons of God in a corporate way. 
But the way this expression is produced is by the divine life, signified by the tree of life. Therefore, the Son of God, the Word who became flesh, the one who came to bear witness concerning the truth, said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What does it mean to have life abundantly? I would even ask myself, can anyone this morning give a testimony? Yes, I've had life for many years, eternal life. But I've been seeking the Lord concerning John 10, 10. What does it mean to have it abundantly? And I think I see a little bit. John 10, 10 is there. Have it abundantly. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that motivate you? Abundantly. I would like to have Zoe abundantly. Filling my whole being and overflowing. It's at least that. Filling me, saturating me, streaming out of me, overflowing my being with blessing all the time, saving me, causing me to reign in life so that every negative thing is under my feet. And I walk in newness of life and speak words of life and enjoy with the saints the fellowship of life. As I drink the river of water of life and eat the bread of life and walk in the light of life in the city of life. Maybe this, maybe we're touching a little bit. The Lord brought you to Jacksonville to give you life. Maybe you got here 2.30 in the morning or whatever time. But you're here. Receive Zoe. He's the life-giving spirit now. He wants to give you life. And the more you enjoy him as life, the more you will know the Lord's recovery. It's the recovery of God in Christ as the spirit to be our life for the corporate expression of God. So, on any given day, if you're in death and not in life, that's a day not in the Lord's recovery. Of course, you are in the Lord's recovery outwardly and positionally, but that day was not spent living in the Lord's recovery. But if you touch life, and you go through your boring, ordinary, tedious day with traffic and dental floss and taxes, mowing your lawn and all kinds of things that we have to do to exist. You go through it all outwardly, but within you, uh, there's a fountain gushing up unto eternal life. You know, two women were grinding. One was taken. The other left. Two men were in the field. One was taken. The other left. Because inwardly, 
intrinsically, there is something of God as life. In the one, as she was engaging in that trivial, ordinary, boring work, the dishes, cooking another meal, Having morning revival at 1045, because with four kids, you can't always schedule things. And you have it with a cold cup of tea that you prepared five hours ago. (laughs) My wife once wrote a poem, kind of like an ode to a cold cup of tea, symbolizing (laughs) the realities of motherhood. She prepared herself a cup of tea, and then the little interruptions came. And then you forget about it. Then you return to the kitchen several hours later. And there it is. Okay, this is our outward human life. But inwardly, if we're touching God as life, we're in the Lord's recovery intrinsically. Now we go on to two other pillars, the church and the gospel. So we have truth, life, church, and gospel. And a thoughtful person might ask, well, what about Christ? Um, Well, viewed from one angle, the Lord's recovery is the recovery of Christ as everything to us. But actually, these four matters are all related to Christ. The truth is Christ. Christ is life. Colossians 3, 4. Christ, our life. Brother Freddie, you and I have the same life. Christ, our life. So when I call him brother, that's not a funny term we use. Freddie Perez is my brother. Born of the same father. Sometimes it's good, I think, to shock the world a little bit. So I was traveling somewhere with one of the brothers. and According to the flesh, you know, I'm a Caucasian male. And he was a large, strong, handsome, African-American male. And I presented... We were in a certain public situation, and I presented us to the person, and I said, this is my brother. (laughs) I wasn't kidding. I said, born of the same father and of the same mother. (laughs) According to Galatians 4, the new Jerusalem is our mother. I'm not kidding here. I'm not kidding here. We, we sang him 824. From all the tribes, from all the divisions, regardless of their classes. No high, no lowly. So you can't even be lowly here. You can't be high. We're all the same. Because we really have Christ as life. 
So when we speak of life, it's all about Christ. The church is the church of Christ. It's the body of Christ. It is the new man constituted with Christ. And the gospel is the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God concerning his son. So actually Christ is the substance of all of these four pillars. Now we need to go through the outline uh, with some care and opening to the Lord to be enlightened. Okay, Roman 1, the third great pillar in the Lord's recovery is the church. The Lord said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. He didn't say, I will build a church. I will build my church. If a, excuse me for this inflection, if a pastor regards the church as his, that proves it's not God's. It's his. Okay, you have your own little church. They're your flock. They're your people. Just by saying those few sentences, you've made it very clear that what you have here is not what the Lord mentioned in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. That's your little flock. And I know your heart. I do not condemn you, but I know your heart because to some extent I know mine. You want a much bigger flock. You want to be on television. You want a mega church. You want to publish books. You want a tape ministry. You want to be great. <laughs> because you're part of Babylon, the great. The truth is unsparing. If all the dear believers, many of whom are ministers, serving the Lord with the light they have, sincerely, if they would all see the truth concerning the church and obey it, there would be a revolution in Jacksonville. Amen. Pastors would no longer be getting their salaries. They would no longer be Balaamite hired preachers. They would get real jobs. They would come in the church and be real brothers. And their wives, if they could take the humiliation of not basking in the glow would be real sisters. And then in Jacksonville, that there just would be thousands of believers meeting as the church of God. Amen. Okay? But it's not going to happen. It'll never happen. Because of the hardness of your heart. So actually, although in the ministry, as this morning, we must be uncompromising 
and in a sense unsparing in presenting the truth. In our fellowship with dear fellow believers, we do not make the church an issue. Brother Lee once said, anyone who makes the church an issue with believers is not our co-worker. We receive all the believers. We don't ask you, where do you come from? If you ask me what church I would go to, I probably would say, duh. <laughs> right? Duh. When, duh. What do you mean? Duh. I'm in Jacksonville. You asked me what church do I go to. I go to the. Well, what, what church do you go to when you're in Anaheim? Well, the. Not duh, but the. I mean, you asked me, so I have to tell you. But I'm not here to use the truth concerning the church to force you to do anything. That's your responsibility. If you'd like to know what we believe and teach, we'll tell you. If you'd like to come to our meetings, we're not a secret society. The Lord's table is the Lord's table. It's open. All the meetings are open. This conference is open. If you're a cardinal and you're a brother, you can come in your cardinal's garments with your cross. And sit in the front row at the Lord's table. I'll serve you the bread. And the cup. Whether I would call you. I don't know what. But I have no doubt. We love you. We receive you. We're not going to give you a message based on Revelation 17 and 18. This does not help our testimony. Haven't we been there and haven't we done that? And so let's not repeat that, young people, okay? Don't repeat our mistakes. If you're going to make mistakes, be original. <laughs> but I think we've already done everything under the sun, giving you no opportunity to do original mistakes. And so I'm not ashamed to present the truth forthrightly this morning, and I will. But we could be having some of grandma's chicken noodle soup in the restaurant. And you can tell me about where you're from and your denomination. And you may be a deacon or you may sing in the choir. And it won't bother me. I'm not going to argue with you. Let us love the Lord. Let us minister Christ. Let us enjoy the fellowship of life. Let us walk in the light. If you would like to know who we are, what we stand for, we'll tell you. And probably, in nine cases out of ten, if we were to argue, I would beat you. That's not a boast. I bring out the verses, things you haven't studied, argue from this angle, from that angle, this angle, and that angle. But even if I could do it, it would mean nothing. I'm not a headhunter. I'm not trying to make you a trophy. 
We do not proselytize. We simply testify. When the seekers get the truth and the light, eventually they want the church. And here we are. Okay? The truth and the light will bring you this way. See, the life is in the truth. So when the word of truth comes, it brings the life with it. And the life produces the church. And the life within you gives you this seeking for the church. This morning, someone told Brother Dave Lutz and me about some saints consciously seeking the body. I would say, how blessed that you have such a seeking. But the body you are seeking, we'll see this in message six, is the intrinsic significance of the church, which is outward and practical and genuine, but not perfect. The body's not floating around there. The body is embodied in the churches. And outwardly, the churches more or less look like us. Okay? Hardly spectacular. But I'll tell you, we're true. We're genuine. We're real. And we're absolute. And we warmly welcome you. But if you don't come this way, let us assure you, we will press on. And we will go on. Because we're governed by a vision. Now, A says the church is the church of God. This is marvelous. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. The church is not of any person or practice, but of God. The church is not the property of the elders. It is not the possession of the co-workers. It is of God. According to the truth revealed in the word, the church is of God, of Christ, and of the saints. So the genuine church is what is of God. It has its origin of, in God. It belongs to God. It's not of any person. So we surely honor the Lord's servants, but the church is not of them. We're not a watchman knee church. There's no such thing. There has never been such a thing. There is no witness Lee church, maybe only in the minds of opposers. There's no such thing. The church is of God. It's not of any person. In the church, 
I am simply a brother, just like you, a member, just like you. And the church is not of any practice. How can we have the church life if we don't have any practices? So we have the Lord's table every week. And we practice praying with the word and we call on the Lord. And You may say, well, I don't like those practices. Okay, then don't do them. That's not a requirement for membership. You were, you were born into the church. There is no membership class. There's no induction procedure. You're here by right of birth. How can you join a family? You apply for admittance. You're born into it. So even this one thing, you just examine all of Christianity. Is this of God and not of any person? Is this of God and not of any practice? The expression the church of God indicates that the church has the nature of God and that it is constituted with the element of God. Or you may say, wow. It has the nature of God, is constituted with the element of God. That must be one glowing, glorious, utopian community. Well, uh, Paul used this expression when he was addressing the church of God at Corinth. And read 1 Corinthians again to see the condition of the church of God at Corinth. Of God at Corinth. This is the church. It's of God, but it's at. Okay, it's at. It's at Athens, Georgia. It's at Miami, Florida. It's at Boca. And it's going to be at a lot of other places before we're done. And because it's at, it's composed outwardly of persons. They're all believers, but they're not all in the Spirit. Paul told them, I couldn't feed you solid food. I have to feed you milk. You're babes. You are fleshy. Okay, on the descending scale, spiritual, you go down soulish, you go down fleshly, you go down fleshy. You are fleshy. But they're the church of God at Corinth. Some may say, that's not the church, they're fleshy. Then you don't know the truth concerning the church. You don't know the church. You think the church of God means that in its present practical expression, everything is perfect, everything is divine. But at Corinth, there were divisions. Oh, I, I like Paul. No, no, Paul, what's he? Apollos, he's eloquent, man. He's the man. No, I like Peter. I like his boldness. Then you've got terrible immorality. You've got... All kinds of questions about marriage and divorce. 
You have brothers suing brothers. You have saints drunk at the Lord's table. They have the love feast and they have the table. The rich bring all their food and the poor have nothing. They're in the same meeting place. They're starving. The rich are gorging themselves and some are drunk. Then they have the Lord's table. Then they abuse. There's confusion regarding the spiritual gifts. And some are not clear because they're Greeks. There can't be a resurrection. The body's not a good thing. We believe in the immortality of the soul. That's at Corinth. Okay? That is, okay, listen carefully. It's not a normal church. It's a typical church. Okay? I've been here about 40 years, and this at involves lots of things because of the persons that are there. We used the example last night of Acts 5. Have you ever been in a meeting where a husband and his wife conspired to cheat the church, to pretend to be absolute, to sell their property, and, and conspire to keep back part of it for themselves, but then come and present everything to the apostles. See, we're absolute. We give everything. And this situation was revealed to Peter because this is a place of light. He said, tell me, did you sell the property for so much? He said, yes. He said, while it was in your possession, wasn't it yours? Now you're pretending. Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And he fell down dead. They carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, his wife comes in. Okay. Even in the beginning, you have hypocrisy. I was in an elder's training several years ago. It was after Brother Lee had departed. And the last meeting was quite exuberant. And brothers were making this kind of proclamation and that kind of proclamation. And I knew something of their actual situation, but they were making these bold proclamations. And after that, I was very worried. I told some brothers, and they shared this feeling. I said, let's not do this again, lest some lie to the Holy Spirit. Why are you pretending here? If you can't give that much, then don't pretend to give that much. Just be what you are until you're different. Be where you are until you're somewhere else. At least don't lie. But my point is for the church to be of God and to have the nature of God and to be constituted with the element of God doesn't mean it's perfect and flawless in its outward expression. How can it be perfect? We're here. (laughs) And there's only us around. That's all there is, right? Forgiven, redeemed sinners, born of the Spirit to be children of God in varying stages of the growth in life. KB, the church is the house of the living God. As the house of God, 
The church is the dwelling place of God. The place where God can have his rest and put his trust. Now, how do you know when you found the church? I mean, you've been here, you've been there, you've been here, you've been there. How do you know? Well, there's the outward criterion of the objective truth. But there's an inward testimony. And it's very simple. It's in one word. Home. 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 Home in the church. It's here where I've ended my search. Home. Many bear this testimony. We came to a meeting of a genuine but not perfect, not ideal church. Meeting with these real but not exactly glorified and transfigured yet saints. And our spirit says, home. Why? Because God says, I live here. Welcome to my house. My house your house. And um, I'm the living God. You want to know what livingness is? Just give me room to speak, to move, to act. The church is the house of the living God. He rests here. He puts his trust here. The church as the house of God is the Father's house, the enlarged, universal, divine human incorporation. What is all this? Well, I put it on the outline. I'm responsible to explain what it is. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, are all God. They are all eternal. And they all exist at the same time. That is, they coexist. Furthermore, they dwell in one another mutually. That is what we call co-inherence. The Father's in the Son, the Son is in the Father. This mutual indwelling, this coherence, produces something we call an incorporation, a divine incorporation. This refers to the three of the triune God mutually indwelling one another. This triune God decided to enlarge and expand this incorporation and prepare the way for us to enter into it. For us to be in God and for God to be in us. And through the Lord's death and resurrection, this is what happened. He said, I prepare a place for you in the Father's house, which is really in the Father himself, and in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. 
So you're in me and I'm in the Father. So you're in the Father by being in me. And I'm in you and the Father is in me. So the Father is in you by being in me. So we're in you and you're in us. So then he goes on to say, abide in me and I in you. So now in God's economy, he produces a house that is not only divine, it's also human. As a result, the divine incorporation now becomes the divine and human incorporation. It's human because you're here. And this is where you belong forever and ever. Amen. And the house of God is this. The church is this. It's the dwelling place of God, the Father's house, in which the triune God dwells in us and we dwell in him. It's, it's wonderful. It's marvelous. We will have the Lord's table meeting tomorrow in the first part of the Lord's table meeting. The focus is on the Son. We remember the Son and we declare His death. The Father does not want us to praise Him directly, but to enjoy the Son. Then after we partake of the elements, the Son as the firstborn within us takes the lead to worship the Father, to sing praise to the Father. And with Him in us and with us being in Him, we are in the Father, worshiping Him by being in Him. And in our spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And deep within, we're in our place. We're not only home, we're in the place prepared by the Son of God in the Father's house. Home, home in the church. Recently, I was asked by a child of one of the saints in Dublin, where do you live? So I just said spontaneously, I live in God. <laughs> but I could say I live in the church. It's actually to say the same thing. You know, I don't own a house anymore. You try to buy a house in Orange County, where I live. Uh, it's just certain things you, you just can't do anymore. So you rent in peace with thankfulness. So I don't have a house outwardly. And I don't particularly like the house I'm renting. I'm thankful for it, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. I could leave it any time, I think. But my real home is with you in the church. Oh, when I came to Jacksonville, I said, I'm just back home. Home in Florida. Home in Atlanta. Home in Dublin. Home in Moscow. Home in Kuala Lumpur. Home in Tokyo. Home in Seoul. Home in London. Even home in Anaheim. I do go there sometimes. <laughs> to know the recovery is to know that the church is the house of God where we dwell in him and he dwells in us. 
C, the church is the supporting pillar and base of the truth. As the church which bears the truth and the base which holds the pillar, the church testifies the truth, the reality of Christ as the mystery of God and the church as the mystery of Christ. A local church should be a building that holds, bears, and testifies the truth, the reality of Christ and the church. If we don't love the truth, obey the truth, testify the truth, what kind of church will we have? Where's the pillar? Where's the base? We read that point from the outline last night. The kind of church we have is determined by the kind of truth we testify. The Lord covers me to say, because everything is of God's mercy. Uh, shortly after I got up this morning, I just had this feeling to tell the truth, which is the Lord. Truth, I love you. I've never loved the truth more than I loved the truth this morning. I just love him. We love because he first loved us, so we don't boast in our love. It's produced by his love. If you don't have that kind of love, don't feel bad. Just open your heart and let him love you. Then you'll be a crazy lover of the truth. You'll just say, truth, Lord Jesus, I love you. I love the shining of light. I, lo I love the light. I like to come to the light. You're the real sun in my solar system. Our solar system now only has nine planets. Poor Pluto. After all these centuries, he gets demoted. He's a non-planet. Anyway, such are the material things. But all of us, <laughs> we are just orbiting around the sun of righteousness. And he's shining into us the light of the truth, constituting us with the truth concerning himself and the church to make us the pillar and base. D, the church is the corporate manifestation of God in the flesh. Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 3.15 speaks of God manifested in the flesh. And it speaks of the mystery of godliness. Godliness is God manifested, God expressed in humanity. That's what godliness is. So when 1 Timothy 4, 7 says that we should exercise our spirit unto exercise ourselves unto godliness, which is to exercise our spirit. We are exercising unto the manifestation of God, the expression of God. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3 speaks of, he was manifested in the flesh, justified or vindicated in the spirit. There's a principle here. 
the Spirit will only justify the expression of God in you. If you're in your good self, being humble in yourself, kind in yourself, patient in yourself, loving in yourself, whatever it is, you're good. The Spirit will not be happy. The Spirit actually will protest. But if you deny yourself, you exercise your spirit to be one spirit with the Lord and let Him shine out through you the Spirit in you and the Spirit in others will testify that is God manifested in the flesh. One day many years ago, a sister who was no Madame Guyon, I'll tell you, she's no Madame Guyon, but a dear sister, she came to fellowship with my wife and I was there at the table for a while with her and my wife. And at a certain point, I felt I needed to leave and go into the bedroom. And I knelt down and I worshiped the Lord because I saw God manifested in this sister. There was God. God came to my house. Especially in this particular sister, whom I know well, who, to say the least, is exceedingly complicated in her psychology. Not just complicated, exceedingly complicated. Nevertheless, she's a sister. She's a child of God. Her spirit is life. She has a triune God in her. On that occasion, she was in the spirit, and God was manifested. The Lord Jesus, in his God-man living on the earth, was the manifestation of God in the flesh. So one says God's manifestation was first in Christ as an individual expression in the flesh. So here is one person, the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. God is in him. He denies himself. He lives God. He manifests God. And God is happy. God speaks audibly. At least twice, this is my beloved son in whom I delight. I approve of him. He manifests me. He glorifies me. But actually, God is not satisfied. Listen to this. God's intention is that his son, the Lord Jesus, the personal manifestation of God in the flesh, would pass through death as a grain of wheat and be multiplied into resurrection and produce many grains, many children, many brothers, many members, thereby enlarging and multiplying himself and producing a corporate manifestation of God in the flesh. That's the church. Because God is now in you. 
Just consider that. Let me sip a little water and you consider this reality. The triune God right now is inside of you. Okay? Now, now, I, now I sip. Where is God? Okay, it's very good to say in us. The more the better. But sometimes to strengthen your faith, you need to say, God is in me. Oh, oh, wow. I can hardly hardly think about it for more than a few seconds, and my mind can't handle it. The triune God is in you. You. Okay, you. You who did this yesterday, and you who did that this morning, and you who feels this, and you who think that, and I'm the same as you who do all those things. We have God in us. When we exercise our spirit, which is one spirit with the Lord, and deny ourselves and let our spirit flow, God is manifested. And if a few dozen, a few scores, a few hundreds, a few thousands, a few millions do this, this becomes the corporate manifestation of God in the flesh. That's the church. 1 Corinthians 14 says, If all prophesy, if all speak for the Lord, if all speak the Lord forth in the meeting, And an unbeliever comes in, the secrets of his heart will be exposed. And he will fall down on his face and worship, saying, God is among you. That's the church. When Pope Benedict XVI was invested as the Pope, with all the pomp. As far as I know, no one fell on his face and testified, God is here. Because God hates, come back tonight and tomorrow morning, God hates that religious system. But the genuine, but not perfect, and not infallible, Church is the corporate manifestation of God in the flesh. So I don't know what you saw when the saints came to the microphone to testify. Were they heroes? The dear brother sharing about the Titanic, he's not a hero. The sister uh, seemingly, perhaps a Russian speaking originally, reading from John 8. She's not a hero. But in every one of them, there was some manifestation of God. The little ones expressing God. That's the church. So too, God is manifested in the church as his enlarged corporate expression in the flesh. Now three, you need to listen carefully, especially... If you're real new, because this may rock you a little. The great mystery of godliness 
is that God has become man so that man may become God in life and nature, but not in the Godhead to produce a corporate God-man for the manifestation of God in the flesh. Only God is God in the Godhead. God is omnipresent, but alas, I can only be in Jacksonville, I can't be in Dublin. When I was in Dublin, I wasn't in Anaheim. When I'm in Anaheim, I'm not in Jacksonville. But God is in Dublin, Anaheim, Jacksonville, St. Petersburg, Johannesburg, and every other place at the same time because he's God in the Godhead, and I'm not. And God knows everything, and I don't. So please don't be afraid to ride the elevator with me to be two or three feet away. I do not have x-ray vision. I do not know the secrets of anybody's hearts. I'm just a simple brother taking the elevator, okay? I say things like, hi, how are you? <laughs> and I'm not omnipotent. I can't create things out of nothing, neither can you. So we're not God in the Godhead. We are not objects of worship. But we are born of God, and we're children of God. In the 1980s, in a very real sense, I lived in a present-day Noah's Ark because I was married to a dear, animal-loving, fish-loving, rabbit-loving, bird-loving, dog-loving wife. So she had 25 fish tanks and, and rabbit hutches in the backyard with rabbits multiplying exponentially. <laughs> then we had three dogs and they would mate and they would sire other dogs and we had quails and other things. And I observed something profound. When the fish reproduced, they begot fish. When the rabbits reproduced, and they did, they begot rabbits. And those, the lopier rabbits, you know, with the ears hanging down, flopping down, they produced the same kind of thing. The bearded collies, the sheepdogs, produced little bearded collies. The dachshund named Waddles, waddling along produced little doxies. And then I look at my wife and me, we produce humans. <laughs> and true to this principle, when the father begets children, they are little God-men. The same as the father in life and nature, but they don't have the fatherhood. My son has my life in nature, but he doesn't have my fatherhood. That's impossible. Now, he has three children. They have his life in nature, but not his fatherhood. We cannot express something if we're not that thing. How can you express what you're not? In order to express God, you have to be God in this sense of having the life and nature of God. And then you're one with him, and he shines out of you. That's the church. To know the recovery is to know the church as the house of God, the pillar and base of the truth, and the manifestation of God in the flesh. Now about 12 minutes for the rest of the outline, then a good 20 minutes for you to exercise yourself unto godliness by speaking something in faith.
The fourth great pillar in the Lord's recovery is the gospel. And here we have to say something um, quite frank. This word gospel has been largely ruined by traditional religious usage. So even unbelievers may refer to gospel music as a certain type of rhythmic expression. And the gospel supposedly is limited to telling people that they're sinners, that they will perish eternally unless they believe into the Son of God who died and was resurrected and will give them eternal life. All that is true. But that is not the full content of the gospel according to the New Testament. In a very real sense, the gospel we preach is not altogether the same gospel that other believers preach. I respect and we all respect our dear brother, Billy Graham, very much. I had the opportunity to meet him on two occasions, one of them lasting more than an hour in Princeton, New Jersey. And we respect his gospel preaching. We honor his his presentation of the gospel. We appreciate the purity of his life. How he has kept himself from money, from immorality. It seems he has white garments. He may be an overcomer in Sardis. He may go to the Lord as an overcomer. That would be wonderful. But brother Billy Graham does not know and does not preach the complete gospel according to the apostles' teaching. Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. Right away he sounds the note. I was separated unto the gospel. And this gospel concerns the Son of God. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And he says, I want to come to Rome to preach the gospel to you. But they're already believers. If the gospel were merely the message of forgiveness and eternal life and eternal salvation, why would he need to preach the gospel to the believers? It's because... The gospel is all-inclusive. The whole book of Romans is the gospel of God. Of course, there's the word concerning reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins, the justification by faith. But for many, that's as far as it goes. Who knows the second half of Romans 5.10? 
much more we shall be saved in his life. Much more. That's part of the gospel. Saved in his life. What's that? Then verse 17. Much more we shall reign in life. Reign in life. What's that? Romans 6, 4. Walk in newness of life. What's that? 7, 6. Serve in newness of spirit. What's that? Romans 8, 2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, setting us free from the law of sin and death. What's this? Walk according to the spirit, the mingled spirit. What's that? The indwelling spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. What is this? We will be conformed to the image of the firstborn son. What's this? We are one body in Christ. Why does he say in Christ? Then Paul speaks of the grafted life. We're grafted into Christ. Then he talks about the actual practical church life as the kingdom of God in which we receive all whom God and Christ have received. And in this church life, the God of peace crushes Satan under our feet. This is the gospel. The whole gospel, and that's just Romans. We haven't come to Galatians, much less Ephesians or Revelation. The gospel is the entire New Testament revelation concerning God's economy. It's not merely God speaking regarding redemption and salvation. What about the gospel of peace? Who proclaims the gospel of peace? What is the gospel of peace? What about the threefold peace in Ephesians 2? Christ is our peace. Christ made peace. And Christ brought peace. And that's the uniting bond of peace in 4.3. What about the gospel of the kingdom of God? What is that? Who proclaims that? According to Matthew 24.14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the inhabited earth and then the end will come. Who is preaching the gospel of the kingdom? In the 1960s, I attended a few meetings of a men's group called the Full Gospel Business Men's Fellowship International. And they thought they were the full gospel because they had the element of being baptized in the Holy Spirit as they understood it and was speaking in tongues as a sign, as the, as the sign as they regarded it. So they called themselves the full gospel. But that's not the full gospel. They didn't tell me about organic salvation, about the grafted life, about transformation of the soul, about the renewing, about sanctification dispositionally, about being saved in life, about reigning in life, about the body of Christ, about the churches, about the kingdom of God, about the coming kingdom age, about the new Jerusalem, about the marriage of the Lamb, about the divine romance, about the mingled spirit of walking according to the Spirit. They didn't tell me. So please drop the word full. Call yourselves the Partial Gospel <laughs> Businessmen's Fellowship. At least that's true. Then they have full gospel churches. You should change your name. We are incomplete gospel <laughs> churches. The full gospel is the gospel in the Lord's recovery. Amen. 
that's not our boast saying, my, aren't we wonderful? We're not wonderful. We're just ordinary believers who have received tremendous mercy from God. Now let me read the outline in about five minutes on this point to give you some impression of the gospel that is pillar number four in the Lord's recovery. A, the gospel includes all the truths in the Bible. The entire Bible is the gospel of God. The truth is the gospel, and the light of the truth is the light of the gospel. We have two references here. Colossians 1.5 speaks of the word of the truth of the gospel. It links truth with gospel. Ephesians 1.13 says the word of the truth, comma, the gospel of our salvation. The word of the truth is an apposition to the gospel of our salvation, indicating equivalence. The gospel is the word of the truth. And this truth is complete. The gospel we preach in the Lord's recovery is the purest, highest, and most complete gospel. Again, this is not a boast. We have no right to boast. This is a fact. One, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with all the processes he passed through and all the redemptive work he accomplished, is the content of the gospel. Hence, the gospel is of him. Two, the gospel was planned, promised, and accomplished by God. And it is the power of God unto salvation to all believers that they may be reconciled to God and regenerated by him to be his children. Hence, the gospel is the gospel of God. Three, the gospel brings the believers into the realm of the divine ruling, that they may participate in the blessings of the divine life in the divine kingdom. Hence, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Four, Christ himself is peace. In his death he made peace. And as the Spirit, he came to preach peace as the gospel. Hence, the gospel is the gospel of peace. Five, Paul's gospel is centered on the triune God being our life in order to be one with us and to make us one with him that we may be the body of Christ to express Christ in a corporate way. This is not complete. There's the gospel of the glory of God. The gospel of the blessed God. Or as one translation says, the gospel of the happy God. This is our gospel. I wish someone had told me in August 1955 when I got saved. I had been born of the Spirit, born of God, 
to, ha- to be a child of God, having the life of God. And now I was in the kingdom of God to be ruled by the divine life. I wish someone had told me when I was 15 years and 11 months old. I wish someone had told me about the kingdom, about the all-inclusive Christ, about the riches of Christ. But no one knew. I don't blame them. But they didn't know. I was held back. I went to a seminary. I was held back, but I got recovered. And in the recovery, a faithful brother from Chifu preached the full, complete gospel. Amen. Hallelujah. Now the last point, the highest. The highest point of God's gospel is that God became a man. That man may become God in life and in nature, but not in the Godhead. God became a man through incarnation and then passed through human living, death and resurrection in order to have a mass reproduction of himself. I am looking at part of the reproduction of God. Oh, how glorious you are. The one grain, Christ as the first God-men, has produced many grains, the many God-men. And now these many grains are blended as one loaf, which is Christ's body, his reproduction. This is the highest point of the gospel. The highest point of the gospel is the body of Christ. Every part of the body of Christ is Christ. If you were to step on my toe accidentally in the elevator, I don't think I would say, would you kindly remove your foot from that toe, which is on the floor of the elevator. I probably would say, please don't step on me. You know, sometimes when the wives are kind of ornery and we misguided husbands are trying to warm them up and so we may touch them gently but they don't want to be touched. They say, don't touch me. I never heard her say, don't touch, don't touch that arm. Don't touch that shoulder. Don't touch me. Why do I use these trivial examples? In order for Christ to have the body of Christ, we have to be the same as Christ. And he is God becoming man, and we are man becoming God. The difference is he is God in the Godhead, and we worship him. We will never be God in the Godhead, and we will never be an object of worship. But we are the reproduction of the first grain of wheat. The gospel of John tells us, the gospel tells us, he died as a grain of wheat to release the divine life and in resurrection he has produced many grains. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 10, these many grains have become a loaf and this loaf is the body of Christ. This body of Christ will be the bride, will be the kingdom, will be the new Jerusalem. This is the consummation of the truth, the life, 
the church, and the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the Lord's recovery. Praise the Lord. Now please pray with someone nearby if you'd like to. If not, then just sit quietly and then we'll have some sharing for several minutes. I hope many of you will follow the Spirit to pray and prophesy.